De la patrulla de Minos de California. Weather headlines for today, yes. Welcome to the Revenue Generator Podcast, an I Hear Everything production. In this podcast, you'll hear how industry leaders integrate sales, marketing, product, and customer success into a single business unit with a common goal of optimizing their revenue cycle. We'll unearth how innovators integrate data, technology, people, and processes to expedite demand generation and increase recurring revenue. Sit back, tune in, and get ready to meet a member of the Revenue Generation. Here's the host of the Revenue Generator podcast, the CMO of Lean Data, Doug Bell. Welcome to the Revenue Generator podcast, where we members of the Revenue Generation share solutions for how you can integrate your business to optimize revenue. I'm your host and the CMO of Lean Data, Doug Bell. And today, we're going to be talking about revenue optimizing analytics solutions. Joining us is Mark Stoos, who's the CEO at Proof Analytics, which is a marketing analytics platform that helps CMOs and CFOs bridge the RI gap by providing cause and effect analytics that shows marketing and sales, true business impact and financial worth. Proof Analytics business GPS guides their clients through the entire marketing's life cycle from planning and budgeting through optimization of marketing across all channels. And today, Mark and I are going to talk about marketing mix modeling. Okay, here's my conversation with Mark Stoos, CEO at Proof Analytics. Mark, welcome to the podcast. Hey, it's great to be here. I'm joining you from Laguna Niguel, California, where there's still a marine layer. It's early enough in the morning where it hadn't burned off yet. So it's a little misty, but we're having a good time. Yeah. You know, I have to tell you, Mark, given the fact that 90% of the world seems to be under heat advisory, I think we'll take that marine layer anytime. We're doing really well in California (laughs) at this point in time. Fingers crossed. For those of you that aren't aware, California is usually the place with the heat and the smokes. We're good for now. That's the truth. And I came here from Arizona. So it's 60 degrees cooler, period, right? It's just awesome. Right. It's pavement melting hot there in Arizona and also in the UK at the same time. So for the uninitiated marketing mix modeling, I think it sounds like yet another, let's call it a throwaway marketing term, but it's not. And, you know, for me, I was suddenly vaulted back into my stats class sophomore year of college when I heard the following way of describing potential methods for landing what your marketing mix looks like. And that term was multivariate regression analysis. So this is not simple back of envelope math and analysis that's going into this. Tell us what this is and tell us why it's so important for marketers to think about marketing mix. You bet. So marketing mix modeling is actually about as a defined use case for multivariable regression, right? It is 30, 35 years old. It is the first company, first major company to really codify it and and make a big deal out of it was Procter & Gamble. They still use it like all the time. It's one of their backbone calculators uh, and how they optimize their marketing spend on a perpetual basis. It has, during that period of time, it was roughly three decades, made really strong inroads into the Fortune 500 in particular. And then, you know, especially as a subset, B2C, retail, other really complicated, multivariable kinds of businesses like that. It has not made it until probably, I don't know, five or six years ago, it did not make it into B2B nearly as much. Big part of that was that until fairly recently, B2B didn't have the data that uh, B2C had in order to feed the models. 
multivariable regression. There's both linear and nonlinear, and, and that might get, be getting a little too technical. But this is the foundational analytic. This is the analytic that underlies the scientific method of inquiry, for example. So if you're looking at climate change or epidemiology or, you know, some aspect of the physical sciences or the social sciences, you are using multivariable linear regression. And the reason for that is that it does a number of things all at the same time. One is it looks at all the historical data and shows you the historical relationships strength of relationships, the stack of relationships, how, you know, one is more important than the other and things like that across time. It gives you time lag, which is absolutely crucial to marketers because almost no, I mean, I can't even think of a, of a marketing investment that gives you an instantaneous upside, right? An ROI that happens right away. It's all delayed some, a lot more than others brand far more than demand, for example but it's all necessary. So we're talking about 80% or so of the world's big questions are, are analyzed with this approach. There was absolutely no reason in the world for marketers not to be using this far more extensively than they have been, except for one big thing. And it had nothing to do with the math or the data or anything like that. It had everything to do with how hard it was to operationalize marketing mix modeling, or for that matter, the underlying linear regression, if you want to take it into other parts of the business. So, for example, when I was CMO of Honeywell Aerospace, we were deploying marketing mix modeling on a huge scale, probably, you know, this is like 10 years ago, probably the only B2B company of any size and stature that was doing it at the scale that we were doing it at at that time. And we were spending seven, eight, nine million dollars a year just on the analytic, mainly because it was if you if you do it kind of the old fashioned way, the legacy way, which is largely dependent on human data scientists, the latency on the recalculation is really slow, right? meaning it takes forever. It's the recalculation is like every six to 12 months. And then, then you have to wait another three months to get the results. And so by the time you get the results, even the forecasts are in the past. So this was a major limiting factor. It was also extremely expensive. You know, historically you have had to go to companies like Nielsen, Newstar, Analytic Partners. There's others as well and pay two or $3 million a year for one or two models. So very expensive, very difficult to scale. You know, if you were doing business in lots of different countries, you were not going to be able to afford to do that under most situations. Honeywell was sort of an exception, a really huge exception, I think. So the bottom line is, is that we saw an opportunity to automate virtually the whole thing. And so that's what Proof Analytics is. It's automated marketing mix modeling software. It also uses a UX that is far more understandable to normal people. So the marketing mix modeling output that you would get from nor a normal MMM vendor is really a data science output. And so it requires a lot of explanation to business leaders or marketing leaders or sales leaders in order to have them make a decision. 
So bottom line is that particularly in a period of time like we've been in for the last three years where there's a lot of change and a lot of volatility to that change, marketing mix modeling needed to behave more like a GPS than some sort of static report of the past. And that's exactly what we've built. So if you are, and this is actually exactly how it works, if you create a model, every time that the data, new data is presented to that model, it automatically recalculates it. And it shows you your actuals next to your projected forecast. And it shows you if there's a difference, it shows you why. It shows you what's, what's pushing you off course or slowing you down or speeding you up or whatever the case may be. And then it allows you to war game a response based on your investments. So this is where it's kind of like rebalancing your 401k. If you've ever worked in a large company where they ask you to do that, it's very similar to that. And so you, you know, you figure out your best way to get back on track and boom, you're there, right? Again, it's just like the GPS on your phone, right? You're cruising along and all of a sudden there's an accident and traffic starts to pile up and the the route that was working fine suddenly isn't working anymore. And your GPS, which is tracking you and everything else around you, says, hey, man, hey, Doug, you know, it's time for you to go right, go left and go right again. You'll be 10 minutes late, but if you stay where you are, you'll be an hour late. That's the essence of it right there. So we figured out how to get rid of the room of data scientists. I'm not saying that data scientists aren't important, but ultimately we're talking about pulling out one of the key personnel cost components that have been driving folks to, you know, frankly, at the end of the day, maybe not embrace as much as they should. It's starting to make the bridge over to B2B marketers. And it sounds like just given how dependent B2C marketers are on this model, it sounds like it's something we should bear paying attention to in the B2B space. It's actually the only, and I, and I normally wouldn't say this, I wouldn't be this binary about it, right? But it's, it's actually the truth. It's the only statistically viable approach to showing the value of marketing, right? You're not going to get there with multi-touch attribution, last touch, first touch, all that kind of stuff. It's not that it's not valuable data, right? But it's not, it's not enough by itself and never was. And then when Apple and Google started deprecating third-party data, it really got gutted, right? Yeah, there aren't many marketing or sales leaders on the call right now who haven't sat and argued over the nuances of a multi-touch attribution model to great frustration because we know that's a slippery slope over time. And typically, it's not spitting out the result we want. But I think out of the gate, you mentioned one of the challenges that up until recently was the challenge for B2B marketers, which was the data set, having the right data set. So talk to me a bit more about what those data sets look like for B2B marketers these days. What can they rely on to get to that better marketing mix modeling formula and something that's got less of a lag? Okay, that's a great question. So the getting to the right answer is not a data first approach. That's number one. You start at the other end of the spectrum. So again, this is exactly like the scientific method of inquiry. So this is not Mark's opinion, right? This is not speculative. This is real. So the number one thing is we always have a sit down with new customers, usually with their leadership teams or some representative from their leadership teams. And we say, hey, what do you most want to know the answer to? The C-suite has absolutely no problem rattling those questions off. They are very top of mind when it comes to marketing and sales. And so we get to, you know, 20 or 25 questions minimum very quickly. 
they are very normal questions. I mean, I can probably predict 18, 19 of them right here, right now. And those questions then say, you know, based on that, you look at the model that answers that question. And the easiest way to get to that model is to say, what are you doing right now? Because what you are doing right now, even if you can't prove it, is your hypothesis of how you're answering those questions, right? So that is, that's where you start, and that's the model that has to be tested. And the model's reasonably standard. This is not a model-centric thing in some respects, anyway. And the model then says, okay, here's the tick list based on the question that we're answering. Here's the tick list of the data sets that we're going to need to arm this model. So you're actually reverse engineering back into the data. And so what a lot of customers find out over time is that they have been collecting, this is particularly true for marketing teams, but it's also true for the broader business. They've been collecting a large amount of data that is pointless to the business. It might mean a lot to somebody's, you know, personal KPIs and whatever role they're in. But for the most part, a lot of it is unnecessary, right? So a lot of our clients stop collecting certain data and they save a lot of money in collection costs, the securing costs, all that kind of stuff. It's non, non-trivial. So this is a way of really getting down to the brass tacks of what matters. And then if you have new questions that require data sets that you haven't used before, then you start to use them. And what are some of those data sets that are less useful for marketers that they typically embrace? You, you mentioned just a moment ago that there's a lot of data that's not very useful. What are some examples? Well, this is going to just like kill a lot of B2B marketers, right? I mean, because... We're ready. We're ready, Mark. It's okay. Hurt us. A lot, a lot of them have spent their whole career focused in this area, right? But the top of the funnel is not without value, okay? it's. I mean, it's important. You've got to be there, right? You've got to be generating demand. You've got to be generating the right kind of leads, But the data that really matters is the data that shows your impact on the bottom of the funnel and on the middle part of the funnel. So the middle part of the funnel is where deal expansion happens. And the bottom part of the funnel is all about average deal velocity. It's how fast is the average deal closing. So at Honeywell, our biggest impact actually was at the bottom of the funnel. And we were able to prove pretty much because no one else changed anything about what they did. And we changed everything about what we did. And then the analytics, obviously, were there. But we got $12 billion of revenue moving about 5% faster into the company. When you do that, the CFO becomes your best friend. Even in a company that size, cash is everything. And, And Kevin, in this case, that's his first name, he became such a believer that he's now one of the board members of Proof, right? So here he is, CFO of a Fortune 500 company on the board of, you know, a small scale-up, right? So that is a big statement. So I would say that everything that you're really focusing on, it's not that lead gen and demand gen aren't important and that they're worthless. That's not really what I would say at all, but they have been significantly overemphasized like significantly. And so you're way out of balance if that is your your big thing. Also, a lot of marketers tend to think that, they think of brand 
more in terms of what helps them at the top of the funnel. And in reality, brand is a distillation of awareness, confidence, and trust in the customer. I mean, brand plays a disproportionate role the further down in the funnel you get. The back half of the, of the average funnel is all about risk mitigation in B2B. And the risk that's being mitigated by the customer is you, the vendor. So that's interesting stuff. And I think overall, a portion of what we're talking about at the end of the day needs to be pointed to, which is the nuance between, and in this case, you referred to Honeywell, and the nuance between a B2B business where you have to a degree a brand dominance setting or footing. And really the motivation is a share of wallet. In other words, how can I get an increasing portion of the average large transaction I get is that the case for you, Mark, as you run into organizations that are really maybe out of that brand-dominated place? Do you think that attribution models still hold up well when it's about that scrapping for every lead and scrapping for every dollar type of business dynamic? Yeah, absolutely. You know, because, I mean, it's just a different set of risks that's being mediated or mitigated. You know, it, typically, I mean, we actually, Proof would be a great example of, of a company that, you know, every deal matters. And so the risks that we are mitigating is largely risks to our cash flow. So if we make a bad investment from a marketing or go-to-market point of view, we're not only a two-time loser like everybody else, but it is really damaging or can be very, very damaging to us from a cash standpoint, right? And so we are we're constantly scrutinizing that because we can't afford to make a lot of bad bets. It's just not there. I mean, you know, whereas Honeywell, the risks that Honeywell is, is really trying to mitigate are operational, they're market oriented, but they're also, you know, we're talking about at that time, marketing budget was something like $160, $170 million a year. And if you spend that wrong, not only does that have a really extended consequences for Honeywell, but, you know, the opportunity cost on that kind of money is huge. You know, I mean, for example, if Kevin had just said, you know what, we're going to spend 50 million and I'm going to claw back 120 million and I'm just going to let that fall to the bottom line. What we're talking about, even in a company the size of Honeywell, in terms of EPS impact, earnings per share impact, is huge, right? So there are so many other ways to spend $120 million in a large company that they really need to know about that and, and always make an educated decision. So I'm doing the math in my head, but I have to say I'm feeling like it's pennies on the share decision we're talking about here against the bottom line. These are dollars not spent and so I can imagine that risk profile is really different. What I wouldn't mind doing is spending the last couple of minutes of our conversation today talking about where you see attribution models going wrong for marketers. You mentioned overemphasis as an example on the top of the funnel. You also talked about how brand can be misinterpreted as being something that drives awareness or reputation at the top of the brand, but quite often plays a factor in the middle and the bottom of the funnel. Are there other examples and reasons that you would have B2B marketers shy away and revenue leaders shy away from your typical attribution models of the day? Well, they're just not. I mean, MTA is, is probably the classic example. There's no way to take MTA, multi-touch attribution, and use that to optimize spend. 
it's just statistically impossible to do that. The main reason, and there are more than one reason, but the main one is, is that time lag makes that impossible. So you're looking, when you collect customer journey information, MTA data, right? You are looking at what is happening, let's call it right now, right? Right now can mean different things to different people, but in the current time frame. But all of that was impacted by spend that happened anywhere from three months to 12 months previously. So how do you know, right? How do you span that time? You can't say that, well, based upon what I see right now, I'm going to spend accordingly because that, that's not really what it was. You're not looking at the ratios correctly. So it's not that the MTA data isn't important. It is. It, it, as long as it's accurate, it can be very valuable in, an, in a marketing mix modeling model, right? But not by itself. If I'm in, I'm listening in today and I'm like, this is, this is really a challenge for me. I feel like I have the right data sets, but I'm evaluating them poorly. I feel like I'm not really fully understanding risk. And by the way, I fully understand that I've got a lag issues that prevent me from really redirecting spend as I need to. What's the ramp period for somebody to make that transition? And what's the biggest thing that typically people need to think about considering when they're thinking about how long it's going to take to get to a really solid model? So, you know, the, this, I guess, would be the same answer for most technology decisions. You know, there's that old people process technology thing that we talk about. And people are always the long pole on that tent, right? It's not an equilateral triangle. So it's, it's your will. It's your culture, what you are willing to commit to that, just like it is with any technology at the enterprise level, that's going to determine your success. The math is the math. The software works phenomenally well. There are others that also do a really good job. So that's not the issue. The issue is, are we going to commit to this? Are we going to allocate relatively small amounts of resources? We're talking about like, really, you need about one data analyst. You don't even need a data scientist. You need somebody that's $100,000 to $120,000 a year fully burdened right? That's the kind of person that you need to support a tool like this. Because once you get it all set up, it's pretty much autonomous. You can also take a completely different approach. We have a lot of partners that for, I don't know, 30 grand, 40 grand, right? Well, you know, in a, over about a two month period, we'll work with you, get it all set up, get 20 models built, right? Start to run them for you. And then, and then again, it's fairly autonomous after that. So, I mean, the, the commitment here is about as low as you could ask for, particularly when you compare it to some of the really huge data science, data management type commitments that companies are being asked to make right now, probably ineffectively. You know, the actual license cost for proof is $49 a seat per month on a monthly contract. So we're seeking to be highly disruptive in this space for the benefit of the customer, right? So, I mean, this is about as easy as it's going to get, but you still need to bring your brain, right? You're going to, as the marketer, you are going to ultimately provide the contextual detail for the model and for interpreting the model, right? And so you still matter a lot. And we've automated a lot of the really hard stuff but you're not losing control 
And you're still very, very, very important to this whole equation. So if you've grown tired and you feel like you're not getting what you should from your attribution models, think about marketing mixed modeling. It is a staple of B2C consumer brands that are out there. Think in terms of your data sets, but it doesn't sound like that much of a lift, folks. And I have to say, as a longtime marketer, Mark's done a really nice job of kind of outlining a lot of the challenges inherent with understanding what your spend is and the results of that spend. Mark, thank you for spending time with us today. Sure thing. Okay, that wraps up this episode of the Revenue Generator Podcast. Thanks to Mark Stoos, the CEO at Proof Analytics, for joining us today in part two of this interview, which we're going to publish tomorrow. Mark and I are going to talk about business data's underlying cause and effect relationships. If you can't wait to our next episode and like to learn more about Mark, you can find a link to his LinkedIn profile in our show notes, or you can contact him on Twitter, where his handle is Mark Stoos. That's at Mark, S-T-O-U-S-E, or visit his company website at proofanalytics.ai. Just one link in our show notes I want to tell you about. If you didn't have a chance to take notes while listening to this podcast, head over to revgenpod.com, where we have summaries of all of our presentations and contact information for our guests. You can also subscribe to our weekly newsletter, apply to be a speaker on the Revenue Generator podcast, or you can even share your revenue generation questions, which we'll answer live on our show. Of course, you can always reach out on social media. Our handle is at RevGenPod on LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Or you can contact me directly. My handle is MarketAdvocate. If you haven't subscribed yet and want a daily stream of RevGen strategies in your podcast feed, we're going to publish an episode every day during the work week. So hit that subscribe button in your podcast app, and we'll be back in your feed in the next business day. Okay, that's all for today. But until next time, keep cranking because the revenue isn't going to generate itself. 